Welcome to Horns Up and yes, for this episode, we're switching on the kill everyone now mode. No points for guessing why, it's because we're joined by Jesse Matthewson, one third of the Winnipeg, Manitoba-based band Ken Mode. Jesse, welcome to Horns Up. How are you doing today? Doing okay. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to be right up front with you. Getting you on the podcast was like a personal pipe dream for actually both of us when we started out this podcast a couple of years ago. So we're just giving you a heads up. This is going to be quite a fanboy moment for us. So just like... <laughs> well, the fact that that's a thing is trippy to me, man. So thanks a lot for having me. Like we're, we're not far from a big band. So anytime anyone's enthusiastic about what we do, we're stoked. <laughs> yeah. So my fanboyism is because of my sheer love for your discography, especially your fourth album, Venerable, that released in 2011. And it turns 10 this month on the Ides of March, no less. Um, <laughs> so... That was my first exposure to the band as well. And that's what we'd like to begin talking about and celebrating as such. Are you ready to go down memory lane and talk memorable with us? I hope I can. We, hopefully not too many of my brain cells have been destroyed in the past decade to be able to prevent doing so. It's funny that that's the first one that you guys had heard because for most people who are familiar with us now, that's kind of the record that pushed us forward, uh, so to speak. And, and that was no accident. That was 100% a calculated move on my part. Excellent. Excellent. And those are awesome. the kind of nuggets we're looking for. Hopefully our questions will like you to, to share a bit more with us. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So let's get some facts uh, into conversation. Right? I mean, Kenmore officially began in 1999. And four years later, you released your debut album, Mongrel. And three years later, you released uh, Reprisal. Eventually, yeah. you released your third album, Mennonite, in 2008. And it takes three years again. I think there's like, I can see a pattern here right now with finally the almighty Venerable coming in. So take us back to that time after Mennonite. I mean, that journey building up into Venerable. When did it begin? Um, it probably really began early 2008, uh, right before Mennonite came out, because we had recorded that in the summer of 2007 after not really having a bassist for probably a year and a half at that point. Um, and we had an offer to do a, our first European tour with the band Taint from Wales. And we had nobody who would go with us to play bass. And at the time, uh, we were kind of scouting a few people, a few options in Winnipeg. And we met uh, our soon-to-be bassist, Chad Tremblay, and he joined the band for that tour. And we started writing after we got back from that one. And uh, what we wrote inevitably became venerable. Uh, but the, the build-up to the record was kind of a strange one. We'd always been a band that toured, but not very much. And because of where we are in the world, we don't have very many cities that are very close to us. Like mm -hmm. the, the closest city with a million people is Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is an eight and a half hour drive away from us. 
And the closest Canadian city with over a million people is Calgary. And that's a 15 hour drive from us. So it's not very easy for us to go to different markets to, to build new fans. And we knew that was always keeping us from really building much of a fan base because if, 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 especially playing what we do, if you're not on the road, people don't really care and no label is going to invest money into you. So it was around 2009 that we decided that we were, I mean, I'm kind of skipping some steps here, but 2009 is when we decided we were going to try and give it our all and see where we could take the band. It was a more of an existential crisis on my part. And my brother had just finished uh, the CA school of business to become a chartered accountant. So he, he didn't really want to necessarily jump into a boring career as a controller of a company or something like that. So, um, and I, I was doing bookkeeping and I didn't really like what I was doing. So it was one of those moments where it's like, Hey, you got, you got to change something, figure your life out and, and move on. And we decided let's try to see where the band can go as idiotic a choice that is. Um, but it actually took two years for us to kind of build that up. We started touring in the States again in uh, 2010, recorded the record with Kurt Ballou at his God City Studios the same year. And even then it took probably another eight months before it could come out and for us to start planning all the tours that we intended to do. So it uh, going from kind of just a, a hobby band to just a band that tours all the time takes a surprising amount of uh, time and planning and, and dedication to it all. So it was definitely a wild time and we, we kind of threw everything away to do it. That that definitely shows. I mean, with a mission, with an MO as clear as that, um, there's no surprise that Venerable turned out the way it is. And let's actually get into that album now. We're gonna kind of just take you through all the ten songs and get your ten and get your thoughts on them. Um, obviously, that album opens with the Book of Muscle, and I'd say it's a song that kind of sets up for the brutality to follow. Uh, which yeah. is obeying the iron will. And I'm going to monologue a bit here uh, because this is a super fanboy moment. I still <laughs> remember the first time I, I heard Ken Mode and Venerable. It was courtesy of feature on Invisible Oranges. I think it was an article where you were talking about uh, going on the road and surviving the US tour and, and, and you know, all kind of uh, stuff like that. And that article at the end of it had a link to obeying the iron will. I clicked play mm -hmm. and I remember I was absolutely floored. I remember playing the entire song at least three to four times, just trying to wrap my head around the sonic explosions that were being caused by a Canadian trio. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't sound like a trio at all. It sounds like oh my god, you've got like uh, that quick no nonsense intro, that incredible lead guitar riff, which I still can't play properly. And my, oh my, that abrasive as fuck bass that's become an aspirational tone for me. And then your vocals simply add to and just increase that intensity. It's song, that song is such a huge pump me up. It remains to this day my favorite song to introduce anyone to Ken Mode 2. Monologue oh. over. And what did you want to achieve with this song? And why do you think it resonated with so many people? It was definitely like we used that one as the calling card for the album because we felt it 
showed enough of our range for the type of band that I guess we'd get categorized as. Um, historically, people had kind of always pegged us as one of the uh, kind of a noisier hardcore type band. And, and we never really felt we came from that world, despite being influenced by a lot of 80s hardcore. But like our bread and butter was a lot of noise rock and, and more progressive, ugly bands like Zenny Giva and Dazzling Killman and the Melvins. And people never mentioned that when talking about us, which we've always been kind of surprised by. Uh, with Obeying the Iron Will, like, I think we've got like kind of Jesus Lizard and Voivod sounding guitar parts mixed up with a breakdown that is 100% we're going for Soundgarden. <laughs> louder than love yeah it's it's a it definitely it, it spans a, a lot of what we were all about at that time kind of oh. kind of drawn from a little bit faster a little bit slower some of the kind of more metallic side some of the more atmospheric black metal stuff that was coming up around that time and yeah it, it was a cool track okay Cool. So then the album just takes a life of its own as such after obeying. Batholith uh, comes in, still has me moshing around. The irate jumbuck or the irate lumberjack, depending on where you're listening to the, <laughs> where you're listening to the <laughs> album to these days. That one, uh, that one, it's me. Yeah, it's, uh, I know certain ca- uh, cataloging sites misnamed it as lumberjack, and it was always the irate jumbuck. <laughs> Okay, so the irate jumbuck slows the tempo down but doesn't pull any of the punches and mm. a wicked bike wraps up in my head what seems to be the first half of this album. Uh, here's the question then. How do you guys sequence the songs? Because there's this fantastic flow that you have right through the album and for me, this opening pack of five songs have to be heard as a pack to be uh, correctly experienced as such. What was the thought process like of just, you know, structuring all these songs in place to create an album experience? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've definitely always taken the sequencing of our records very, very seriously. Um, trying to remember, probably from Mennonite on, have, have we really, really focused on that where we're trying to create a, a certain soundscape with it all and and tell a story and and not get too repetitive with any one theme um and i know in 2010 slash 2011 when we made this cds were still kind of the dominant media form so we weren't necessarily thinking of an lp format but i think it did end up splitting pretty well this one was kind of a weird one for us too because we we historically and we kind of still have done this where we end our records with a bit of more of a slow jam. And this one we put uh, never was right in the middle, which I think was kind of cool. So moving on, I mean, you know, right after that, you've got the first instrumental of Pernival, which is uh, Flight of the Echo Hawk. Is this an older song since the album credits uh, your former bassist, Yamil Russell, as an additional composer? Because it acts as a great Alan Kelsner of sorts. Yeah, elements of that one are a little bit older. He wrote some of the bass lines with us after his former bandmate, David Kelly, who was in the band Kittens, 
um, passed away in 2008. And we, I think, jammed together in 2008 and we brought that forward because we wanted to do a tribute song to him. And we thought it was suiting that Jamil was part of the writing process on that track too. Um, there's actually, uh, the Book of Muscle has, I guess one part, that the first riff, that one I wrote before Mennonite. I just couldn't find other parts to go with it. So there were a few ideas coming into this album that were a little bit older um, that just found the right stuff to go with it now. Coming back, track six now, Never Was, which begins on an ominous note. I mean, it's terrifying, if I may say, mm -hmm. to listen with headphones. And it's so melodic, so precise. Was, be honest with us. Was it a bitch to record? Um, not really. We kind of, because it's a slower one, we kind of had fun with that one. I, uh, okay. It is funny because this was over a decade ago that we recorded it. Um, it wasn't as easy to bring sound files and samples uh, to light. And we actually brought in a sample from an exorcism that we always liked the sonics of. And we mixed that into the beginning. But like we mixed it very subtly. It's not as in your face as most people would do with something like that. Um, and then I think... Uh, Chad may have like triple or quadruple tracked the bass on that beginning. So it just, no it really big. Mm. <laughs> now the secret's out. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. An exorcism, really? <laughs> yeah. It was a woman just screaming wildly in the background. And it, it sounds cool. I, I, I like it because you wouldn't know that's what it is, right? It just sounds. Absolutely not. You can't even really tell if it's a person that's making those sounds, but it just, it's unnerving regardless. Those are the kind of sounds I like to use on record. And I'd, I'd like to get more into sampling with things like that. Where just something's not right. I don't like this. I don't know why, but I don't like this. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Okay, cool. So <laughs> after, after that ominous track then, uh, the ugliest happy you've ever seen brings the tempo back into familiar territory. And then that brings us into the album's second instrumental, Terrify the Animals, which has, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it has Kurt Ballou, who's also producing and, record and recording Venerable, stepping on slide guitar. Yeah. Uh, what's that the story one... behind that song and Kurt's involvement? That song we literally just put together in the studio. We were jamming on a riff, that riff that that song is, um, because we'd, we'd had that from before. And we I don't even know why we decided to start jamming on it, because we, we recorded that one live and then built things around it. Uh, so it was never really a very well thought out song. We just kind of flew by the seat of our pants on that. And Kurt said like, I have an idea, I wanna try this. <laughs> That sounds cool. Let's roll with it. Yeah, that's why it kind of, it starts and it kind of just ends. Ends, yeah. <laughs> it does lead us in with the, to the fantastic album Closer, Mako Shark. Uh, and that song brings the end to nearly 43 minutes of oral ple pleasure. I have to <laughs> say, <laughs> one of the sheer joys about Venerable is the way it makes you guys sound. 
mean, aggressive, intense, scathing, measured, superbly confident. And of course, it has that signature Kurd Balu touch as well, right? The graininess and rawness. So here's the question. What made Ken Mode approach Balu? And what were your initial talks with him about? How did you guys arrive at what you wanted Venerable to sound like? What was the emo behind that? I I don't even remember why I originally got in touch with him. I knew I liked the work he did with the band Suicide Note and that last Swarm of the Lotus record that he recorded, uh, what is it, Sirens of Silence. Uh, those were unlike anything else that he was kind of known for recording at the time because uh, he, he kind of cut his teeth in largely the hardcore scene and kind of the Death Wish records, that whole crew of people uh he he recorded a lot of those bands and then kind of started to get a signature sound when he uh was recording bands like uh trap them Mm. and nails and then he he very quickly got associated with kind of that heavy metal pedal kind of metal kind of hardcore sounding bands and everyone in the u.s started to record with him then um and we went to record with him right around the time that all that was happening, but for different reasons, because of some of the weirder left of center bands that he'd done in the earlier 2000s. Um, and I just thought that he had a good handle on bass tone, uh, that especially on uh, his work on the Converge record, No Heroes, yeah. I really liked the way that one popped and the whole thing sounded just violent. And I wanted something like that for us. And that was part of, I guess, the strategy of what we were trying to accomplish with this record is we we wanted to leave our home to record for the first time. We wanted to work with someone that would actually add something to it. And not to be too schmoozy, but like we wanted a name attached to it. And people know Kirk because of Converge and all the bands that he's worked with. And that that helped us. It helped get our foot in the door for people to go like, oh, okay, I'll check this out because I know it, at least it'll be well recorded even if these guys suck. So, so I mean, you touched a bit upon, a bit upon this, that it was a conscious decision because uh, Venerable was like a marked difference, right? This was the first album that you all didn't record at home, but you're actually recording with someone. But yeah. was Kurt your first choice or were there others that you considered recording with also? Yeah, for this one, he was our first choice because uh, we knew, like, we self-funded this one 100%, and we knew that he still kind of had a punk rock budget, so we could pull the thing off without going completely (laughs) broke, and we ended up recording and mixing the entire record in nine days, so it's, uh, he, he, he definitely... I don't know how he works now. I'm assuming he's kind of used to a little bit bigger budgets and more relaxed schedules, but he at the time was certainly used to working on a punk rock scale, which was really cool to us. All right. So you kind of walked into my next question because uh, the album was recorded between uh, 19th to 20th of August, 2010 at God City Records. Take us back to those punk rock days. What are your memories from the recording studio? I mean, uh, is it is it as glamorous or is it as punk rock as it can be? Um, he runs a tight ship down there. It's not a very big room. 
Um, but he has every inch of it dialed in and he knows how to get the sounds he wants out of it. Um, which was really cool for us to be working with under those conditions. Cause we hadn't really worked with someone who worked that quickly before and specifically owned the room and knew how to approach absolutely everything without question. Um, so I think that was definitely contributed to how we could make this record that quickly. And we also like, we, we wrote the songs, practiced them a ton, toured on them for several tours. So like these were dialed in songs with the exception of terrify the animals that we made up on the spot. And I read Jumbuck. I actually, that was the first time I ever did the vocals for that song mm-hmm. because I, I rewrote them. Um, cause I wasn't happy with them and then didn't have a chance to actually perform them, which was really, really silly. I don't think I've done that since we've had, I've had to do rewrites on things in the studio before too. I know on Entrench, I had to rewrite a good portion of counterculture, uh, complex. Really? Yeah. I had a completely different, uh, chorus on that one. And after I did it, everyone kind of went, yeah. I don't know. Like, ah, oh, fuck you guys. <laughs> uh, but it ended up being way better in the end. So I guess they were right. I yeah. can do this under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, coming back to something that we brought up at the start, right, when we were talking, I mean, uh, reading up in the band, prior to Venable, the band was known for its ferocious live act, but a lot of critiques when you read say that that didn't translate onto recording. So was there like a conscious effort to rectify this when you went into record vulnerable? Um, yes and no. I mean, par- part of capturing the ferociousness of the live display is finding the, the producers who specifically chase that, right? And a lot of the records that we've made since we've we've chosen to work with producers where that is kind of their bread and butter. And that's literally what we've been doing. We've been going down a bucket list of people that I've always wanted to work with and just like checking them off each one. Yeah, which actually makes me wonder at this point, like who's going to be next, right? Because after this, you just kept getting like, I mean, punching your weight way higher when it came to producers, right? Yeah. The next actually, one's with Rick funny. Rubin, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have the budget for that it was funny though uh on our last record when we were working with andrew schneider he he joked like so what's the deal with you guys working with a different person every time like you just bored <laughs> and uh it ended up uh we're, we're working with him again for the next one so he's he's breaking the cycle for us <laughs> Oh, we'll get into that at the end of the at the end of the venerable love uh, which <laughs> now continues uh, yeah, yeah in an interview from 2013 you've said and i quote uh, with venerable my primary goal was to take everything we'd done with ken mode musically and blend it all together into one definitive statement for the band as i wanted this album to be the one that put us back into the collective international extreme music psyche was that really the ambition? 
<laughs> yeah, it, it definitely was at the time because I kind of I felt like despite working with some labels that were had done things with Escape Artist Records, who put out our first two records, um, they put out the first albums by bands like Isis and Anodyne and Keelhaul uh, and Time in Malta, who went on to do bigger things and by the time we got to the label, they were really starting to ramp down some of their activities. One of the, the main owners of it, Gordon Conrad, was one of the head guys at Relapse Records at the time. So he was very busy with Relapse. Um, and we were so green. That, like, we needed our hands held on absolutely everything. We, we were, like, I think the first time we toured the U.S., a tour that he booked, uh, Shane was 19. So he couldn't wow. even legally... You couldn't even legally play in bars. Yeah. I was 21. Like it was, we were meeting people that were fans of our band in the U.S. that were all at least 10 years older than us. And they were kind of shocked and a little embarrassed when they met us <laughs> and found us were that young. Which it was kind of wild uh, doing that then and then eventually trying to make our reintroduction almost 10 years later where we were no longer the young kids <laughs> <laughs> oh well now we're certainly the young kids <laughs> but uh, coming back to invisible oranges because they certainly love you guys uh venerable was described by invisible oranges as and i quote protein powder fueled beast do you think that's an app description and yeah i think you know where it's coming from <laughs> yeah i i think that's apt <laughs> who was writing for them back then i can't remember but this has something to do with uh, them reading on your decibel tour diaries that you guys pulled into a walmart and bought uh, protein powder on the first day. <laughs> yeah. we, we tried to uh, mix protein shakes in the van with water and it was just so awful. That did not last very long. I forgot about those tour diaries. <laughs> I, you know what? They're no longer online. So maybe yeah. you'd really? be happy. Uh, yeah. I bet I have those saved on our server somewhere. <laughs> I should publish them all sometime. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, cool. So here's another fanboy moment, uh, talking about lyrics specifically. There are two lyrics from the album that have stayed with me since I first heard the album in 2011. And uh, both of them kind of tie into what your MO or what your objective uh, with Venerable was as such. The first is from Obeying the Iron Will, which is, I'm tired of living for what could have been as life is too short for second best. And the second is, is from the irate Jambak, which is quitting is for the weak. Both are fantastic credos to live by, right? Because you certainly seem to be living by them. Yeah. And I think the uh, drive behind each statement I still follow, but probably for different reasons now. Um, yeah, the quitting is for the week. I don't necessarily agree <laughs> with anymore because sometimes you do have to learn when it makes more sense to give up than 
continue to beat a dead horse to futility. Um, but in the case of what I was trying to accomplish, I, I definitely still believe in why I said that. Because that one specifically was about trying to chase a certain goal. Um, and I mean, both realistically were. It, it's, it's about killing that part of you that is afraid and just doing everything in your power to take control of your life, minimize risk, and try to accomplish what you desire. And I think we still very much follow that but maybe a little bit more cautiously now. Yeah, I can definitely see that credo of, of yeah, just, just putting in the amount of reps and putting in on the amount of hard work and shining through. It's still, that's still one of the defining characteristics of what you guys do. Mm-hmm. It's all about the journey and uh, the most fun things to do usually require a lot of work. Yep, definitely. So Venerable goes on to get you a lot of critical praise. And a Juno as well. I mean, that was the first year that they introduced the hard rock and metal category again. And uh, I actually watched last night uh, tour diary of sorts that you guys did with uh, Orange uh, Amps. Uh, quick short one of you all at the Junos. But, you know, the reason I want to know about the Junos also, uh, Fuck the Facts were also uh, nominated that year. And we were talking to Will uh last year uh, about it and what the junos mean to them so i kind of watched the video but i couldn't really understand was it given like the main ceremony was when they were giving out the awards or was it like you know the grammys where it's like pre-recorded or done without the main ceremony yeah they they do it like the grammys where they have the big arena show that they have all the people at and they only have a few actual awards presented but the night before they do most of the actual music awards. So that was the thing that we wanted at where it's basically just for industry. Um, And if I recall correctly, we were very early in the night too. Like right dinner was being served. We won and had to be whisked away. And we're just like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now it makes sense why there's a line in the video where you'll say, so we don't get to have dinner now. (laughs) Now I understand. (laughs) But that was really cool. But uh, what, what other memories do you have from that? Did you guys, did you guys get custom made tuxes or something of that sort? No, that's one thing I noticed. None of you guys dressed up. (laughs) No, I mean, Shane probably looked the nicest. He, uh, he actually had some nice clothes from his office job before. I had like an okay black shirt. At least it had a collar. <laughs> and I think I wore uh, some decent dress pants. Andrew didn't have any nice clothes. So <laughs> he just showed up like the guy from Florida who had no regard for what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was even finding out that we were nominated for that was pretty funny to us because like music, like what we make should never win national awards. That's ridiculous. And to have us, who was definitely the least popular band at the time, win the thing, it just seemed ridiculous. Um, but I mean, it, it allowed us to ride a wave for another almost five years. So it's pretty cool that it happened. 
Yeah, like I was reading one of the articles and it actually says, uh, I think it was a Manitoba or some Winnipeg uh, publication and, and they mentioned the nominee, nominees with you guys and say, when it comes to fuck the facts, they're like, band whose name we cannot mention or something like that. And I was like, okay, yeah. wow. <laughs> so, but, you know, safe to say that, you know, Venerable was an album that really shone the spotlight on the band and really helped widen its reach. But did it do anything for the band commercially? I mean, getting you, say, financial or government support and how much really, uh, now I'm curious to know, uh, how much really being on profound lore had an impact on this reach of promotion because that that was the first time you went on a metal label or a slightly bigger label right yeah um profound lore i think was a, a huge step forward for us because at the time they were a building label um they put out records i know yob had just got to get back together and put out a record through them they just did the agalot record which was one of the biggest ones that ever done um who else did they just put out brutal bloody panda yeah did yeah. a record with them they had a, a whole ton of really really cool bands on the label at the time and um they were starting to get the reputation like the more metal version of what hydrahead was at the yeah. time and uh Chris seemed to like what we were doing. So that was cool. And it definitely helped put us, get us attention that I don't think we would have otherwise got. Um, yeah. In terms of like the impact of the, the slightly raised profile, um, we didn't even think of it at the time, but after specifically after we won the Juno people in the industry in Manitoba told us like, you should try to get grant money now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I kind of went like, oh, yeah, I guess I could try that. And that's when we started playing that ridiculous game. Uh, and Canada has like some really, really great programs for that sort of thing. And specifically, our province of Manitoba has been very supportive of the band ever since, which were, I mean, we keep joking that it's like we, we play rock and roll fantasy camp every time that we're making records that we can't afford we're, we toured the world for like six, seven years when realistically we couldn't have afforded to do all that without the extra support. Like we would have gone broke. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just, it's very cool that some countries even have programs like that to afford bands, these, these opportunities. And I mean, in the end, all they're trying to do is build cultural exports for the, the country anyway. And the fact that you guys even know who we are is kind of a testament <laughs> right there. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool that you mentioned about like the impact uh, Profound Lore had, because that's how I own the CD, right? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. someone did a whole distro deal and sent it across. And hey, here's a couple of guys in India who own your CD. Didn't yep. think, I don't think you thought about that all those years ago when signing no. to them. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. With a lot of the areas of the world, like India, I have no idea how any of the distribution works with a lot of labels. I know certain traders will like bring in small distros, but like a bigger international label like Season of Mist, I have no idea if they have any distribution down there. 
No, no. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the same. Yeah. <laughs> we pay more in shipping than we do for the actual record. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I kind of do the same thing in Canada, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Okay, so since Venerable, Ken Mode has released three studio albums, played bigger stages, toured the world, and then some. So 10 years later, Jesse, how would you assess and place Venerable in your discography? Oh, dear. Existential question. Yeah. Almost. It's kind of the one that we grew up on. It's, in a way, I feel like it's our first record. That's if, if anyone wants to start listening to us, start there. Um, and that's really the first time we became a serious band. Right. For, that, I, for that reason, it's definitely one of our most important. But as an artist, I feel I have to say whatever I'm doing next is actually <laughs> the most important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, your next one will definitely be the most brutal, the most vicious, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And I, I know that with all this stuff, it's a time and a place for everyone. Like, even if what we're doing is objectionably better than what we were doing on Venerable, that doesn't mean anything to the people that that record is near and dear to. So all you can do is be true to yourself and hopefully be doing it for the right reasons. And if it's for keeping yourself sane, which is essentially why we're doing it, I hope it works. <laughs> oh boy, it certainly does. All right. So let's kind of wrap up our love fest for Venerable. And like for those listening who are wondering like why the hell are two guys from India talking so much about this album? Let's give them a taste of the album. So which song should we play from Venerable and why? Oh, I think you'd have to do Obeying the Iron Will just because of the intro you guys gave it. But <laughs> there's a couple that I feel are a little underappreciated for our, our whole catalog. A Wicked Pike is a an absolutely insane song for us. And I think it brings in a lot of flavors of sounds that were the, just like it's the very core of what we're about um kind of the some of the weirder dc style not quite hardcore but not quite indie rock the discord records type catalog mixed with uh, a little bit of melvin's and keelhaul feel it's kind of just off the walls and i think Maybe that's part of why people don't really like that track. I don't know, but it's one of my favorites. And, I think it has uh, a lot also, to do with the with how late it appears on the album. Maybe. Yeah, I'm noticing more and more, the longer you make albums, the less people make it all the way to the end, which, I mean, Sucks. I guess people that are sampling things anyway, but uh, people who actually own the physical product will usually put it on till it ends. But... I don't have stats on that, so. <laughs>
Alrighty, thanks for indulging us, Jesse. But uh, before we let you go, we have to ask you about something that had us truly excited when we first heard the news, which was way back in around 2013 or 2014, when you guys apparently went back to Baloo's uh, studios to record something for a Bollywood movie. <laughs> I, I think it was Anurag Kashyap's Ugly. How did that whole thing come about? And did that progress to anything more with the world of Bollywood? I have no idea. It was honestly, it was a thing. We were on tour. We were coming through, I think on either a day off or we may have been playing Boston and we dropped in on Kurt to go have lunch. And it was a friend of his that had asked him to contribute something. And he figured since we were there anyway, if we could play stuff, it would speed up the process for him because then he could just be the engineer and not have to play everything also. So we just went in there, made a bunch of noise, and he kind of pieced it all together. And I, I guess it got used in a movie. I'm, I honestly, I, because we were so busy at the time with touring, I, I didn't make a point of following up much. And I think the most I actually know about it is from like two interviews we've had that dropped that now, uh, asking about that. And I, I have no answer. I don't know anything about what happened with it, unfortunately. And I couldn't find anything either. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. We can't seem to find the actual music too. But it's, it's super weird because I remember when I remember the director. And, uh, and just for your context, the guy who directed the movie that you guys were apparently doing a score for, he's like one of the, uh, how would I say, the, the gnarlier... Uh, almost like a Quentin Tarantino-esque cult figure. So okay. the very fact that he was name dropping you guys as being part of his, uh, as being part of the contributors to the score had us going like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the only mention I find of this is on Langoat and a couple of other websites now. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> and Weird. it kind of just says the exact thing that you say, except like it's talking about going and eating Indian food. So hey, I'm, I I know I know what I'm going to be doing uh, on Twitter very soon. It's like, hey, did this actually make it under our kashup? <laughs> yeah, we should get to the bottom of it. Like now, <laughs> ten years later. <laughs> very curious. <laughs> so you know, uh, we've heard that you got studios booked from the first of July to work on not one but two records. So at least what that's people- what we're that's what we're hoping. All right. So what what can you tell us about that? And when can we expect a new album or two albums? Oh, boy. Um, Anything I can say right now is uh, completely speculation. But we do have 10 songs that I'm fairly happy with right now that are just about just over 48 minutes worth of music. Scott is coming in next week for another writing session and we're trying to do at least another one after that too. And we're just, we're going to try and make as much music as possible that fits into kind of a, a broad feeling of, of what the pandemic has made us feel and then hopefully record all of it. Um, my, my goal, uh, actually it's funny, Scott has another band called Adeline in his home of Saskatoon and they just got finished tracking 80 minutes worth of music. Wow. And now I want to try and do that. 
So <laughs> he was saying if he can do 80 minutes worth of music for both bands in one year, he feels maybe he could stick around a little while longer. <laughs> makes makes kind of, logistical sense. Yeah, that's, that's what I'd like to do. Um, if we can get like two full lengths out of that, I have no idea how what format we'll do that in. Cause I don't, I don't think it makes sense for a band like us to do like a double LP or anything like that. Cause I, I feel like no one would listen other than like diehards. I don't think anyone would really listen to two discs worth of stuff from us. So I'd like to kind of put them out maybe one in one year, one in another year and have them have like a connected theme, but like have them as distinct works of art on their own. Um, I don't foresee any of this coming out until early 2022 but who knows i think just the logistics of it if we want to get it pressed on vinyl it wouldn't be ready till 2022 which is kind of unfortunate because if we track it in july if it's mastered by the end of the summer we probably have at least a six month wait before it'll actually be pressed on vinyl so that that brings us to to 2022 already yeah, and it also depends because like everyone's recording right now, right? So vinyls, yeah. <laughs> vinyl record, I mean, the press I'd rather over plan for this thing to make it so it doesn't flop, especially since like, I don't even know if we're going to be able to tour for it. So yeah. it'll, it'll be an interesting experiment uh, as to whether bands like us can make an impact without a live show. But, I mean, we're up for the challenge. We're, we're, we're trying to keep doing things to as high a standard as we will be satisfied with so as not to go completely mad. And I haven't gone mad yet, although people may disagree once they hear these records. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that, that, that was our exclusive scoop, I guess, yeah. uh, about the uh, new album. But uh, so since we brought it up, I have to ask you this. What, what's with the Twitter silence? I mean, did you just like one day go delete the app or it's like screw everyone? <laughs> what happened? So we joined Twitter, I think, in 2007. Um, and at the time you had to be. I don't even know if they had an age restriction, honestly. You could just no. create an. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at some point years later, you had to put your age and that was before they had business accounts. So we put whatever age we needed to be to be legal. So we did that. Um, and then it would have been what, 2019 when I saw this and it had some arbitrary birthday. So I changed it to the band's actual birthday. Cause I figured, well, we're a 20 year old band at this point we should just say we've been around since 1999. So I did that and Twitter suspended our account, just locked it all down. Said, because you were under the age of 13 when you created this, it was made illegally and it's uh, under suspension. And I put in like a whole bunch of uh, disputes saying like, this is a business. You are shutting us down. We are a 20-year-old band full of <laughs> men that are considerable than that. And they just didn't respond. Wow. So 
after a while, I just gave up. And honestly, I'm better off not having Twitter because it is just a cesspool of negativity. If I can get away with not having Facebook too, I'd probably be a much happier person. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree on that. I thought it was like something to do with just you know, you getting frustrated. Yeah, how fucked up it's been. <laughs> I can't handle Twitter anymore, numb nuts. But it's actually funnier. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, definitely. Yeah. Like, I'm just wondering, like, to someone or, like, you know, the bot or whatever asking for, like, age proof, right? Because that's what Facebook does now. Like, you need to actually, if you have anything, send in, like, your actual identity. Be like, hey, yeah. I'm Ken Mode. <laughs> Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> I think, yeah, I even sent in like our business registration papers to them and nothing. I've been having that problem with Instagram too, because I'm trying to get us that, that stupid little blue check mark because we have oh. it on Facebook and, and they just won't accept any of the, the business documents I see. <laughs> You know, what's the irony of that, right? Is that what? Facebook, it, I said the ironic part is that Facebook owns Instagram. <laughs> so yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, the last time I submitted something to Instagram, I literally took a picture of the linked Facebook account that has the check mark and just went, <laughs> e-file. Still nothing. <laughs> different p man. These companies <laughs> yeah. and the different p <laughs> it's the worst yet at the same time it connects us all which yeah i i there are so many instances where i just want to delete all of that stuff but the fact that like i get to correspond with music nerds from all over the world all the time through it it's the only reason i keep it around and and the it, the ability to s- discover new and cool music from people that like you'd otherwise have no chance to talk to, it it's what this community is all about. So I begrudgingly continue. On that note, Jesse, thanks for being such a sport. This has been fantastic. I hope you enjoyed <laughs> this as much as we did. And Most definitely. There's so much more we'd like to talk to you, uh, talk with you about, you know, be it the latter albums, be it the earlier albums, all the songwriting stuff, all the songs, MKM management, the accounts and the business world. But all that's for another talk, right? Yeah. Well, let's set it up then. I'm down anytime. Hmm. Closer to the new <laughs> album. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We're, we're calling dibs on that already. Yeah. <laughs> Well, sounds good. You, you know where to find me now, so. <laughs> True. Exactly. Not on Twitter. <laughs> and if all of you have been listening, well, thank you. Spread the Ken Mode love there at kenmode.bandcamp.com or on Instagram at kenmodenoise. You can also chat with us if you'd like. We don't bite either. You know where to find us. We are at hornsupport.com. As always, I'm at Asmoani. I'm at Trent Crusher. And this is Hornsa. Hornsa, guys. Okay.